HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Bonnie Plants, bonnieplants.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey. <laughs> hey, and welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Chris Fisher of Beetlebung Farm, who got too excited at the beginning of this show. And yes, Chris, it is my favorite day of the week. Even, even better that you're here today. Thank, Thank you, you so much for being here. You know, I, I was reading through the cookbook and reading about you, and I realized I don't think I know 12th generations of, the 12th generation of anything. How, how does that feel to be that kind of legacy? Uh, it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, growing up on Martha's Vineyard. I I always found it interesting how you introduce yourself um, to people. It's like my name's Chris. Uh, I'm Albert's son, Ozzy's grandson, and you have to give people a point of reference. Um, so it kind of keeps you honest. You don't want to embarrass anybody. Yeah. Um, so checks and balances. And where you are specifically on Martha's Vineyard, Showmark, how many years? 250, 350? For our family? Yeah. Actually, my grandfather grew up in Vineyard Haven, which is where the ferry boat comes into. It's a little more built up. Uh, His father was from New Jersey and somehow made his way over there and actually lived on a little island off off the coast of Martha's Vineyard called No Man's Land. Uh, It's a good name. And he had a cod fishing business. There's a essay about it in the book and it became so popular at one point it was the way he wrote about his process was beautiful and they had actually boats that were designed to be launched off of no man's land in the in the heavy surf and they dried the uh well you can read about in the book um but they they dried the fish in the sun and they had a school over there and they would sail to new bedford they would sail to the vineyard and have parties then he moved to Vineyard Haven, and he had uh, the first gas pump on Martha's Vineyard. And he said, uh, 
there's no future in gas and he sold it <laughs> <laughs> and anyway so my grandfather grew up in vineyard haven uh during the depression and he kind of farmed his way around the island and eventually um he had opportunities at other farms to purchase them and worked uh worked his whole adult life and and bought the farm in 1961 so that that's really the first and i mean the the roads weren't paved actually when he bought it um some of the roads there was no electricity in the town next door so it was a very different uh different place so it was truly a homestead at that point like you were sustainable you know you you were completely devoted to whatever land you live on yeah i think living on martha's vineyard uh is it, it's an island off of the coast of cape cod and it you have to be able to support yourself if you're on an island and it's the 1700s and you don't have any modern day conveniences but luckily you also have the most amazing pantry in your backyard um yeah my grandfather grew up in the depression and he said that the depression was easy for his family they the government offered them subsidies and food stamps and they turned them all down and told them to give them to other people because they were just bartering for whatever they needed and they had all the food they needed and so um yeah he he definitely taught me how to take care of myself i guess yeah <laughs> and, and others yeah and you talk about that pantry and uh, you know let's mention again the sustainability of an island or or that area of new england in general um there's this idea that it's always just lobster bakes and clam digging and i mean is that what food and growing up in in you know uh, martha's vineyard kitchen was like yeah I, I grew up um, both in Chilmark and Aquinna, and Aquinna is an even smaller town uh, on that side of the island. Um, Chilmark has about 800 year-round residents, and <clears throat> Aquinna has, I think, half that. I was the only kid in my fourth grade class, which I like to mention because I was number one in my <laughs> class as well. Um, so it was really, really rural. Um, the first house I lived in, uh, also didn't have indoor plumbing. We had an outhouse. We lived between the ocean and the pond, and we had pet raccoons. We had pet crows, um, pet swans. And my dad was a fisherman. Um, he went to the Vietnam War. He came back. He fished on sword fishing boats. He was a lobsterman. He kept lobster pots my whole life. He had a backyard garden. He hunted. And so those foods that you associate with coastal new england cooking or martha's vineyard there's re first of all they're delicious i mean oysters lobsters you can't go wrong with that but they're everywhere too and they're easy to get and so um it was we were just my dad had 10 lobster pots when i was growing up that he kept really close to our house and he had a keeper pot and he would go out and fill the keeper pot all summer and then at you know, various times, my brother and he and I would sit outside and we would eat as many lobsters as we could. <laughs> and I was a teenager and it was like, you could just literally have as many as you wanted. And it was didn't feel like anything besides normal. See, I, I like how motivated by food you were at a young age, um, because there's a little passage in here about you cooking in high school at a local restaurant and deciding, I, I don't actually want to cook. I want to be a dishwasher because you get fed better. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I used to ride my bike to and from work, and I didn't have a flashlight on my bike. And again, Martha's Vineyard is just, there's a reason why it's become this destination. It's, it's a truly special place, and I just like, even that experience is one of those things I look back on of 
being in high school and riding home at the end of the shift and being full because I got to feed myself. And the dishwashers were much cooler than the cooks at that time, too. I don't know if, what, what it was. but And also, since then, like I always take care of the dishwashers the best because you have to rely on them for everything. And, uh, I cooked a meal last week, and I... It's pretty fancy, and every course I brought, I made a course for the dishwasher as well as the guests. And, um, but uh, yeah, riding home at night, no lights. Like you could hear deer on the side of the road. Car would come and you'd get blinded. You come up over this hill at the Allen Farm, and the moon would be out over the water. And um, sorry, that's kind of a tangent, but um, yeah, that I was hungry. I was an athlete, and I was growing and. If you can work and eat, that was the other thing too. As I got older, like, why not work in a restaurant? You can just eat all day long, and you save on food bill. I mean, that's still like, I never have food in my fridge. That was my concept. I, I didn't want to be a starving artist. I just wanted to be an artist. Yeah. So like, work in the food industry. Exactly. I've never. I think my entire adult life, I've like, when I lived in New York City, there was beer in my fridge, and that was it. Um, even now, like I work on a farm work in restaurants there's like no food in my fridge ever because <laughs> i just eat that's the other thing about farming too it's like walking through the field if you're hungry just like plop off an asparagus eat some parsley it's good for your breath vitamin c yeah it's great so why did this island kid want to move to new york city um <clears throat> i i have weird like sleeping habits and energy and like i just am always you know, even as a teenager and in college, I would like drive overnight to crazy places and, and run marathons and like just like I had an enormous amount of energy. I would ride my bike to, I was a stonemason for a little while, I would ride my bike at 5 a.m., build stone walls all day, and then ride back. I worked one job that I canoed to every day. <laughs> I had like an enormous amount of energy. And so coming to new york it was just like this frenetic place that that you could stay awake at all hours and um and so and it's just like when when you grow up on an island and you aren't exposed to a lot of things that you are in new york city um just getting there your your like mind explodes and then being interested in food <clears throat> and also being somewhat competitive it's like why don't we just go to the best and and see if you can make it and my dad gave me a great work ethic and and the idea that you should enjoy your work too so i just like dove in and worked really hard <laughs> what was it about your first meal at babo that was so enjoyable well i'm pretty sure i ate a ribeye steak for two that was just like cooked perfectly and Subsequently, when I worked there, I found out, you know, they, the whole process, uh, they got that from La Frida and porcini, brown sugar, marinade. They just, like, soak it in that um, for a couple days and then grill it perfectly. And it was like, I'd never had, finish it with some aged balsamic. Like, these are, th I'd never had anything like that. And, like, the mouthfeel of the ribeye, I can certainly still remember. I had a ribeye last night, actually, at Il Buco. It was really good <clears throat> after that party. Um, and the music, I mean, that's back when Mario was in control of the iPod, and it was like rock and roll. David Lynch was a sommelier, and it was like 
you know, the whole experience, the, the service, it was so fancy and foreign to me, but um, so incredibly enjoyable. So, yeah, I was just like, this, I want to be a part of this. I believe you started at 22 years old. I was 22 or 23. I can, I'm like, try to go back and like, especially with writing the book, like figure out dates, but I don't, I'm like. Oh, this is the first year <laughs> I forgot what year things happened in. Yeah. So I am not even going to try anymore. But in two and a half years, you made your way to sous chef at Babo. Yeah, it was actually a little bit less than that. Um, I think, well, first of all, you know, my family has always taught me to be very modest and including with this book and you know they were uncomfortable certain members just talking about themselves and so i'm kind of like the aberration to just like tell everyone all their personal business so they don't some people are a little uncomfortable with that but when it came to babo like i i think that first of all i think there's just something wrong with me period like i just have a weird enjoyment of work and food and being creative and so like if I get focused on something, I can just kind of enjoy it and tune lots of things out. Um, and I was like 22, 23. I had all that energy. Um, and I was really naive. I had no idea what I was doing. So I just worked really hard. And um, I didn't know anything. And I still don't know anything. And luckily with farming and cooking and writing that you just get to keep learning forever. But I just, I didn't know any better and I just like worked really hard and I liked it and I would pick up other people's shifts. I remember, I was trying to remember one, there was one point that I worked like 30 something days in a row or every time I tell that story, I add like 10 days to it. <laughs> so it's probably like six days in a row. But oh, now my, it's at like 36. Yeah, I have my 114 hour work week pay stub, which <laughs> I don't have the stub anymore, but I think it was about that. Um, and <clears throat> excuse me. The one thing I, I just, and I tell cooks that I cook with now, like when they ask me for advice, if if they do, first of all, I tell them not to be a cook because it's actually not as fun in restaurants as it seems on TV. Well, actually, that's not true. It's not for everybody. Um, well, if they want to make money, don't be a cook. <laughs> if you want to eat well, be a cook. Actually, I don't tell anybody not to be a cook. I don't know why I said that. It's just... New, my new radio personality. No, that's right. I let you figure that well. out for yourself. Yeah, yeah, this is like therapy. I like this. <laughs> Nobody's listening to this, right? It's no, just no, me and you. Um, no, I, I don't know how I figured this out, but it was a good lesson. Like, I just worked as hard as I could, and I and I made my coworkers' jobs easier. Like, if somebody's cutting board was dirty, I would clean it. If somebody's trash was full, I was empty it. If I, I would look at their prep list and try to figure out how to like. And that was like that. That was a huge. That I think was that really just progressed me. Was that like if your kitchen mates are like, oh, this guy's actually pretty helpful. It makes my job easier. And then, so I just continued to do that every step of the way. And um, I had great, great. I worked under some great. You know what's a pet peeve of mine is when people say my sous chef. Have you heard that? That's like so common in cooking. Possessive. Now. Yeah, it's, yeah, I hate it. It ha like, it just drives me insane. Somebody was said that to me the other day, and I was like, I've told, I've actually 
certain people that work for me when they say that I'm like don't say that that's like that's so rude to that yeah, person it also it creates a caste system um, that that doesn't have to be and like you're explaining right now um, you need everyone to work at their full potential but harmoniously exactly to, to, to be a successful cook mm-hmm. restaurant person and I was an athlete too I played basketball and I was a point guard and I always the other thing too is I always like always think about those lessons learned playing high school sports and and sports before that and a lot of cooks too will be like you know it's like kind of like not cool to like sports and and a lot of people in kitchens they're kind of they're in a kitchen for a reason they're kind of counterculture and i always like try to like you know i read i i coached sports for a long time too and i would read mike krzyzewski's biography and and who is uh vince lombardi's biography and like you know there's so much that applies to a kitchen obviously and if you can do it right but um yeah well we're actually going to take a quick break and come back and talk about when new york wasn't enough for you when you had to travel the world and why the island drew you back to your home you've been listening to the food scene on heritage radio network.org we'll be right back be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app, the sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. Hey, and welcome back to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here again with Chris Fisher of Beetlebung Farm. And before we launch into why you went back to the island itself, let's talk about I the term. Be- <laughs> end, end of the show. Done. Thank That's you. the answer. <laughs> Beetlebung. What does it mean? Beetlebung is a tree. Um, there's a big grove of them on the farm. They're beautiful. They're known by various names off the island although i've never seen them on the off the island uh they like to grow in swamps it's called tupelo or black gum tree off the island and um they were really hard wood and they're used to patch uh 
casks on whaling ships. And they're gorgeous. Their foliage is amazing. There's a little pond that they surround on Beetlebung farm. Was there any specific tree? Was there one that you maybe carved your name into? One that you sat under that nurtured you in a way, kind of like Shel Silverstein's book? Um, that that made you want to come back to the island and and respect, you know that that history, that etymology, uh, that those roots. Yeah, I mean a literal tree or a figurative tree. We, we could talk. It could be one. There's of a couple. I mean, there's amazing trees on Martha's Vineyard all over the place, actually. Uh, and climbing trees was a great activity as a kid, and I also worked for my cousin's tree care company for a while. I worked every job under the sun, <laughs> which is really helpful when you run a farm because you can figure out how to fix most things um yeah i think what i was getting to before about sort of introducing yourself as you know albert's son and ozzy's grandson and that sense of place and that pride i i definitely missed it when i was off the island and i wanted to come back and i mean that's the point of the book in so many ways is to share the story of this community a community that's celebrated on Martha's Vineyard, but Martha's Vineyard oftentimes is more celebrated than the community. Like, you know, the president vacations there, and that's all people want to talk about. And, like, he ate in the restaurant I worked at once, and I think there's, like, five restaurants, and he was staying nearby. So I take it that it was just the most convenient restaurant, <laughs> and people, like, always ask me about that, and I'm like, yeah, I don't know, there was... A lot of secret service there and it's an honor but i i'd like to think that he just came by accident um, and like when you think about seasonality too that that is such a small part of the year on martha's vineyard totally so this book really <clears throat> is, is is a tome it's a document of what the island is like every single day of the year i don't mean consistently mm-hmm. but how it changes how how it feeds you differently mm-hmm. how, how you're inspired by it definitely um that was Catherine Young's idea, uh, my co-author, to start the book in September, when the natural idea would be to start it in the summer, because that's when it's known for. Um, and also, it, yeah, it, it's just a true um, record of a year of cooking on Martha's Vineyard. And with my family existing there for so long, I like to think that it's 350 years in the making but just a year of like a snippet and so as far as when when we're conceptualizing the book like how do you categorize everybody wants to call it farm to table and i hate that word so much and then there was seed at farm to table at one point and i just you know I don't even... I, we don't have to be negative or get into whatever that stuff is, but... Well, don't you have a table <laughs> on the farm? Yeah, that, that seems true. more appropriate. Crisp, yeah. Um, but, yeah, so as far as, like, the seasonality of it, it's... We didn't do four seasons. At one point, we talked about doing 12 months of the year and four seasons, and now it's just, like, pick a random day. Here's the menu on that random day of the year, and... Um, the seasons change so much week to week, day to day. Like you have such an intimate relationship with the ingredients there that um, it wasn't it wasn't fitting to to um, sort of put anything in a box. And yeah, it's it's even from when I left two days ago and when I get back in a couple of days, it's like a completely different cuisine. <laughs> yeah, I think there are seventeen menus, all wonderfully designed, letterpress by by Emma, mm-hmm. um, and they are signifiers of. M- 
you know, not even micro or macro seasons, but just of, of these benchmarks of the year. Um, I was looking at your blog and bluefish, mm-hmm. you know, there's also a recipe of bluefish and par- parchment in the book itself. Um, what does that mean to you throughout the year? When you see that first run of bluefish? Oh, it's like mouthwatering. It's like you can't sleep the night before because you can smell them coming. My dad, my dad is like, I mean, th- that's the other reason for writing the book is like his relationship with nature is like the most powerful thing in the world. Like, we'll be on the beach and he'll, first of all, he'll be able to see the fish through the water um, from far away. You know, he can read the water incredibly. But he said to me before, like, I just, I just smelled a couple bluefish swim by and I didn't catch them. And I'm like, I did. like he can literally smell two fish swim by it's crazy and when you go fishing with him on a boat it's like you always catch fish and there's a story about my sister who caught a 50 pound striped bass when she was 12 years old and she definitely inherited his genes of of fishing and reading the water um and uh i don't have it i go out fishing by myself and it's like i don't think i've ever caught a fish with well I, that's not true if i go with my brother i'll catch fish but if I go by myself, I don't really. Yeah. I catch trout, and they're like this big. <laughs> and I like try to take a picture of it so it looks. So like it's not actual. like fish in a bucket. No, no. <laughs> it used to be. <laughs> you have a recipe for griddled squid. Mm-hmm. That too is one of those signifiers on the island. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the squid come in in the spring and in the fall, and they'll show up at random times. I, I wish I knew a little bit more about them, but they definitely. Um, I think they come and then the bluefish follow them, but the squid are obviously following something. And squid fishing is enormously fun too. It's like it's you go down to the docks at night and take a flashlight, and they're attracted to the light, and you just dangle a squid jig over the thing, and they just pull them up and they squirt ink all over you. And like it's for kids, it's the best because it's safe. It's kind of adventurous at night. It's scary. It's like so photogenic we should have uh photographed that um yeah it's it's and and when they're uh fresh like that too it's yeah you can save the ink and do stuff with the ink and then uh they're so good so you just mentioned something about family you know about how that, that's child friendly but you know the island itself has been family friendly especially for yours for for hundreds of years um how important is it to be inclusive of everyone on the island and, you know, everyone that you cook for at Beach Plum? Um, it's wonderfully inclusive. And, I, and I'm not cooking at the Beach Plum anymore. I don't know if you knew that. But, yeah, we, we went into that restaurant and really wanted to. We, we did special Sunday night dinners. We did benefits for the school system, the island-grown school system. Um, where the kids came in and cooked with us, and they actually worked as... Ho- Every staff member had a trail, and there's these elementary school kids, and some of them, it was the funniest thing. Some of them we wanted to offer jobs to. Um, it's, it's like baseball. Yeah. You draft them right out of middle school. Exactly. <laughs> but um, in a community like that, that's small and tight-knit, um, yeah, it's so... I mean, that's the great thing, is the, all the families that come down and enjoy each other's, you know... Uh, and get to know one another and you see the same families every year and then also the families that you're integrated into like the elderly are really well taken care of by their families and that's just a way of life and I spend a lot of time with people of every age and that's the beauty of you know 
in the cities, you can kind of pick and choose. In New York, you can see the same people, the same people that work at the same place and are your age, and it's, you know, it's a little easier. In a, in a little community like that, it's it's just, yeah, there's, there's... We used to eat lunch every day at the farm growing up in the summertime, and sometimes there was four generations of fishers at the table. My grandparents, my dad's generation, my generation, and then the kids my cousin's kids and it's like that's crazy it's amazing like 25 of us yeah well when your aunt marie retired five years ago did you feel that familiar obligation to keep beetle bung totally (laughs) yeah no i had felt a lot of pressure and i really didn't know what i was doing and i still don't know what i'm doing and um uh yeah it was it was a great amount of pressure to keep it going and keep it the same but also kind of bring my own perspective of things and we i had uh learned from my grandfather how to dumpster dive at a young age and recycle everything and we kind of just like took a shed from my mom's house and dragged it over here and painted this sign i found some old paint like finger painted some signs i remember this yellow sign that said beetlebong farm and um I also had been blessed to work for Keith McNally, who would take these incredible old things and, and I mean, his aesthetic is, is the best. And so to kind of, to have observed that and then to be able to do it with actual free materials. And uh, it was definitely a balance between my grandfather's cheapness and his like incredible eye for that old stuff yeah. so i feel very lucky well I, I feel like you have that same ideology when we we talk about your food you know your menu is reliant on these these kind of tried and true techniques but have these nuances of modern cuisine mm-hmm. yeah the idea was well uh to be a farmer and a fisherman on martha's vineyard uh, f- traditionally was meant that you know you were you lived simply, and you ate really well, and you had these ingredients that we've been talking about at your fingertips. And so, like we said before, that's how I grew up eating. And then to be able to cook in all these places that I was fortunate enough to cook in and take this and that from all those techniques and thoughts and references. And I also am a, a, a voracious eater and try to... I'm staring at that cheeseburger right there. It looks <laughs> so good. Um uh so yeah to bring all those things together and and we wanted the food to be very accessible and cookable and then we also i always thought of it like because the people that come and work on the farm or work with me or are attracted to beetlebung it's like i wanted a chef to be able to take the book and see it and recognize these techniques or this like choice for simplification and say like hmm, that that's makes more sense than doing you know adding 10 things to it and then i also wanted a home cook to take simple food make it more delicious than they ever dreamed possible with four ingredients and have that confidence and maybe learn a new technique or how to treat something a little bit better than they they did before and so i yeah that was my dream my dream to write a book but my once that was done it was like to think about if people actually read it which I'm not sure they there's one copy there. So we've got one copy out there. <clears throat> um uh to be able to like have anybody pick up the book and say like wow that's 
you know, there's some very complicated things here and there, and there's like the most basic thing in the world. So but there's a nice balance. What I had been telling you before the show is it, it's the tone. Um, it's very special. It's it's very conversational. It's it's very you now. Now having sat here for <laughs> you know thirty minutes, you can you can see yourself you know reciting these things to a writer or to a young cook or to a friend and them all taking it with the same value Mm -hmm. oh thank you um like i said you know we've got one copy here you may be the only person that's (laughs) read it or will read it but if as long as you're inspired by it then then we've done our job um yeah i don't my mom was a teacher and she was a special education teacher uh and she influenced so many people when she passed away i remember um going to the funeral and there was a million memories from that day from body surfing before the funeral was like the most incredible i didn't want to get out of the water to we took the door of her refrigerator because she she decorated it with magnets and art and we hung it like put it in the center of the the hall where the funeral was that was a cool move um she had these quotes on it that were like it's just so amazing she had a little advertisement that i loved for this snowboarding company which is a little mouse wearing a helmet going into a mouse trap have you ever seen that in commercial it's really good um but i just remember looking out of the hall and there was traffic in west tisbury and there's only traffic during the fair and it was all of her former students coming to pay tribute to her and there's one woman that i know that gave me a quote that was um your mom, she was her second grade teacher, and she said she was the first ter- person to teach me to color outside the lines. And I just always remembered that because I feel like that's what I've been doing my whole life. And I feel okay with it. But she was she was a teacher, so she I, I really um, I spent a lot of time with her. I drove to school with her every morning. I'd sit in her classroom, from, you know, and see her work with kids. And she taught she taught me a few things (laughs) yeah well it must feel special to be at this point in your life where you can have something like this that you can pass down that can be archival and you get to teach people in the same way that many generations of fishers have yeah that was the point was you know there's a lot of verbal skills that are passed down and nonverbal skills and from generation to generation in in a small community like a rural community and the foxfire books that are some great books uh, written in the 1960s i believe in west virginia i believe i also thought it was maine but there are these great series of books about appalachian living and it's and that was a big inspiration for this book and we looked at this a lot and we actually i really wanted there was a something in there that inspired me it was how to make cottage cheese and i'd never heard of anyone making cottage cheese and i was like don't now now it's going to go on some menu somewhere it's going to yeah. be on the menu here tomorrow awesome well, at <laughs> um, least with this book we know how to make creme fraiche exactly yeah. <laughs> so that's where the creme fraiche or the ricotta but i always i wanted to put a cottage cheese recipe in the book and so i was looking at them and then i was just realizing the value of that type of book what is your father's name albert and your grandfather's name albert so when I come to the island, I know to at least introduce myself as, oh, I know Chris, son of Albert, yes. son of Albert. <laughs> yes. Um, and my brother, yes. Uh, I don't know why I got skipped on a lot of things. I didn't get, my brother got the same initials. He got a shotgun when he was 12. I got a radio. I don't know what, what he was, but I just wasn't, 
and then I'd steal the shotgun. It was probably like they didn't trust me to shoot the gun. Um, my sister too, she's the best shot in the family. She's like such a little badass. She's so funny. She'll like, we used to drive around in the truck with the 22, which is illegal. Don't do it. And dangerous. And, uh, she was like eight and she'd like have it, the gun on her lap and we'd see a rabbit and she'd be like, hey, and I'd like pull over and she'd just lean out and just pick off the rabbit and we'd keep driving. And uh, then we would feed the rabbits to the red-tailed hawks that lived in the neighborhood. So we had a nice friendship with them. They, they would s- fly over us, and my dad would feed them, and they come would come down and watch them eat. And it was pretty amazing. Those things are scary. You ever seen one of those? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other fun thing that we used to do as a kid, I, I feel like, um, was similar to that was we used to go to Penikey's Island, which is a small island off of the off of on the other side. I guess it's in the Elizabeth Island chains, uh, and it was a leper colony at one point. So they'd ship them over there, and there was like I'd picture like caves and cages and stuff. I don't know exactly what they lived in, but the lepers went over there, and then it became a place for juvenile delinquents, which is an amazing thing. Like you're from wherever and you do whatever and you go to this place and it's this little island with nobody on it there's one little building and a farm and you live there and you figure out your life and the newspaper was delivered every day by seaplane i remember like flyover but we would go once a summer with these marine biologists and my dad would take us to band baby seagulls and so you walked around this uninhabited island you'd find seagull nests which, like, what? who knows that skill as an adult in contemporary? Like, how to find a baby seagull is... I don't, I don't remember how you did it, but we did it, and we were, like, seven years old, and you just walk around, and, like, that was... And when you got near a, a nest, the mother would protect the baby, so they'd come down, and they'd um, try to... They'd stick their talons out, and they'd try to scratch you. And I remember getting hit once as a kid, and it, like, freaked me out, and... Just right across the scalp, but also it was like you're in the you're also like in a in a movie too. It was like this fantasy world. It was so fun, um, and that's what it was like growing up in the woods of Chilmark, like leaving and then coming back. Um, there was there's so much to see, and the vineyard's a really small place. But I really feel like with my my attention span too, it's like you could spend. Um, you could spend your entire life just in the woods of Chilmark alone and like still not see everything. Like my, I remember like watching Robin hood, um, the cartoon. And then my brother and I like going to this stream and lying in it and finding a reed and like sitting underwater and breathing through the reed. Do you remember that scene when they escaped? And, uh, there's another funny tradition too, that doesn't take place anymore on May day, you know, May day, uh, the, the maypole. In elementary school, on May Day, all the kids, <laughs> all the kids hid, and the teachers had to find them. And the last person to be found won. And early on, there was no rules to where you could hide. You could hide anywhere. So you would like just run through the woods. And I'm like, how? In retrospect, it's like, how did the teachers ever actually find you? Like, I remember kids would go to like the next town over. <laughs> and one year, and when you're young, you're like really scared. I remember my first hiding place. The schools here, the big toys here. I went in the slide, and I just like hung. Like 
I think my first hiding place was under the front steps of the school. <laughs> so they like walk out and they're like, yeah, we got him. He's in kindergarten. And then first grade, you hide like on the slide, like hanging there. They can probably just see your fingertips. And then, then you gradually like, I think I pulled the reed trick one year, but then got like hypothermia from being in the pond next door. Or you'd hide underneath like buildings. But this one kid won one year because he locked himself in the trunk of the principal's car. <laughs> and like hours later, everyone's like, all right, Simon won. Where is he? Simon? Simon? And it was like, and you just like hear this faint like kicking and they let him out. So that's not, that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to know that the food on Martha's Vineyard, especially Beetlebung Farm, is as exciting as your life was there. Sure. Well, it's like the, I, I don't know, it's like the, uh, I think if you're excited about it, then other people can be too. Yeah. Often I tell people at the end of the show, you know, buy the book. Mm-hmm. But more so, go to Martha's Vineyard, because if you've never been, it, it is as magical, if not more, than you're describing. And what you've contributed to it only makes it more idyllic. Yeah, the more that you know about a place, the more the visitors that come are going to want to honor that or be a part of it or support it. And so there's a lot of traditions that could disappear on Martha's Vineyard. There's a huge farming movement right now on the vineyard, which is so important that... You know, the the traditional New England homestead, which is what Beetlebung Farm essentially is, and these small farms in New England are so important for our food systems. And we've gone away from that. And if if you can educate people and just, you know, to go back to the whole farm-to-table movement um, that that is occurring and, and everyone's tired of that word, but if you can really educate people on, on what it means to buy directly from farmers and support the right kind of fishing and the f- producers that are doing things properly with with animal um, with with the animals they're raising like then you can start to correct things and especially people have been talking about California for a long time and and a friend of mine was talking about it a few years ago, and they were saying, you know, California's gonna is in trouble. And and she said, like, she was like, what you're doing on the farm, what's happening, what traditionally happened, where you know it was a part of your life and it was small scale and it was realistic, and and you know that's that's important and that needs to be shared. And and I didn't that stuck with me, but I realized it more and more, like, you know, and I'm an educated eater and an educated somewhat educated um person and it's all natural to me but you know most americans a lot of people don't you know they don't don't think about their how much their food choices influence things well it's it's ingrained in you but it's certainly embedded in the book as well and uh, on top of the wonderful recipes it's, it's a must read for all that thought behind it so thank you for that Thank you. Yeah. It was a pleasure having you on, and I certainly am going to make my way out to that small island south of Cape Cod soon. <laughs> well, you're more than welcome. Uh, that's the other thing growing up there is, like, uh, I never owned 
keys to my house. I never knew where they were, and you left your keys in your ignition. And so if you come and you just figure out where I live, then the door's open. Well, I at least know if I see a man smelling a fish. It's most likely a fisher. Yes. <laughs> You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Sure. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>